welcome to Multiversal Q, your guide to the comic book multiverse. Now in podcast form, I am Luke, and this week we have a special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, um, I'm Claire Napier. I'm the editor-in-chief at Women Write About Comics, but that's not why I'm here. I'm also Claire Chrismont, fan cartoonist of the X-Men. Yeah, you had ended up adding some more comics to... Uh, the comic she'd previously posted on Twitter or reposted and is like, hey, these are really good. Thank you. And it's alternate universe fan theory stuff. And this year I'm trying to expand who I have on, what we talk about and that sort of thing. So I was like, hey, let's get Claire on. And here I am. Mm -hmm. It's good when those things work out. I agree. So sort of the premise of it is at the end of the claremont run of x-men everyone wakes up with memories of sort of where they were in continuity at the time am i like describing that correctly well it's not quite as precise as that it's it's not necessarily refined to um to the claremont run even though of course he is where i have taken my very clever name um, although I have to credit Paul John Milne for that. He came up with that. Um, it's more um, the project. The project is a, um, a sort of act of separation for me. Um, I did a, an article for, um, for our website a while back, a few years ago, about um, separating oneself from fandom. Um, that was about Harry Potter because it was becoming a real drag to hear tons of new revelations or new canon or whatever about this series that I'd been invested in. Um, and I just, I didn't want to be as invested as I had been because I wasn't actually, it wasn't genuine. It was just based in habit basically. And that's kind of how I started feeling about the X-Men because I haven't really been a current reader for a while. I got tired, I got bored. Um, but I still had that habitual or nostalgic or like I had, I still had an emotional investment. I was still, I felt like an X-Men fan, even though I wasn't in practical terms, an X-Men fan. And that felt unhealthy. Um, so I, I wanted to, um, like I still had opinions and, and feelings about X-Men, but they were more personal than, um, like I, I feel like my connection to the X-Men isn't channeled through Marvel's ownership of the X-Men and allowing myself to, to stay, I guess, intellectually adherent to Marvel's version of canon was bringing me down. It, it wasn't useful for me. It was just making me miserable and bitter and cynical. So these comics... Um, they they're sort of channeling all of my readership, everything that I've read from the official stuff, which is a lot, from the beginning to um, I've probably read about thirty years worth solid, which is you know a shit ton of content. That's that's a lot of stuff that's gone into me, and um, this is kind of the sausage, I guess, coming out of that. It, it, yeah, it's it's yeah. my, um, like the parts of canon that I value and the parts that I feel were, you know, done wrong effectively. Like I, I appreciate that there's no such thing as canon done wrong or, or, mm-hmm. or official work. It's, it's coming from, if I were in charge, 
this is what I would keep and this is what I would throw away. And it, it, it is supposed to be, um, it probably wouldn't work as a something to read if you haven't read a lot of X-Men also. It is definitely a responsive project. But it, it, it's um, having read so much and having looked at it as canon, like as this official, like technically real stuff, like looking at these comics is looking into another reality. This is my, how I would feel most, I guess it's how I would feel most comfortable. This is a version of this property that allows me to feel maximum comfortable. It's what you like. It's what you wish you were still able to read that you don't necessarily feel partially because comics are awful in a way. Yeah, basically. Um, some of it is based in things I wish had happened. Um, or And some of it is, like, for example, um, I spent a lot of time in my teens um, thinking come on guys there are obvious ways to get around the fact that rogue can't touch anyone with her skin she could have sex if she wanted to why aren't you letting her so that is a a fairly strong um aspect of my version you know if people want to have sex they can um Mm -hmm. but uh other sections are like the wolverine part is i think it's sad and a shame that he didn't get to have his lady who he loved she died in the canon and i'm not like i don't look at x-men comics and think it is definitively wrong that this character died but i do look at it and think it's really sad it's a shame i want the best for him it would be nice if he got to just be in love and married and whatever so that's Mm -hmm. what i do in the case of wolfsbane rain um she's not a character i have a particular affection for she's not someone uh well, <laughs> I say someone, that's that's how I think about them, I guess. But um, she's not a character that I identify with or that I um, particularly love. It's not that I want her in my version. Relate to? Yeah, um, it's more that the way that the character has been treated and written in comics that I've read makes me really uncomfortable. And I don't think that it's fair. I think that she's been treated in sexist and unpleasant ways. And it's important for me to be able to reappropriate that character and um, make some kind of statement that acknowledges the fact that I find it really uncomfortable to read. It's not so. It's it's not like in that in that sense. It's not um, like triumphant. It's not a like a fun fan. This is what I wish would happen. It's that was what I really didn't like happening, and what it was what I wish what I wish didn't happen while I was reading it. And basically, I feel like I'm trying to present the fairest version based on what has actually happened, I guess. Like with uh, Jubilee and the whole vampire thing. Yeah, it's not that that necessarily is something that upset me personally. I, I didn't really mind about the vampire thing. But um, but in that case, it's something that I think is interesting that could be... I mean, the X-Men for me were always interesting because their powers seemed so psychological. The the fact that they were superheroes was cool, but the fact that the things that they could do seemed to really express the things that they were feeling was more important. And with Jubilee and the vampirism, that seems very... I mean, a vampire is a psychological monster. So it, it seemed like something that wasn't being capitalized on in a way used for anything well yeah i I mean and i can't say that for sure because i didn't read all of her appearances um as a vampire because for one thing i didn't have the money and for another thing i didn't 
really have the interest. But um, yeah. when I came to um, attack this property on my own time, that was something that seemed interesting to me and something I thought that I could use. So I did. I mean, it's it's not in that in that example. It's not so much um, that I feel like the canon definitely didn't do it. It's just that if I was going to do it, this is what I would do. So I did. It's it's um. They they vary the um the sections in what motivated them specifically and and how I guess personally important they are to me. But they're all um I find the X Men interesting, and in their various examples, this is how like they're they're interesting in different ways, and so their stories come through me in different ways as they would anybody I expect. It it's uh interesting way to approach that idea because i i do think that in a lot of fiction or especially for a lot of times when new writers take over it's about resetting things to what they feel the story should have been or undoing things that they didn't like i mean jubilee's whole situation was she was a high profile target they get depowered and then they needed someone to turn into a vampire who would still be x-men adjacent and so she just got that double whammy mm-hmm. And neither of those things really happened for a way that had any purpose to adding to her character. It was just doing something with her character instead. Yeah. Despite of that, I mean, she's had some good moments and uh, she's gotten to grow as a character, but it was still rough for a few years. Yeah. Um. I think, I think that um sense of, I mean, a big hang up for me is, um, and the main reason, I guess, why I, I don't read as a buyer any current series from either Marvel or DC. Canon is too long. I really think that that's true. I don't think that it is psychologically viable to keep telling continuous stories about allegedly the same characters who age very, very, very slowly for this long because too many things happen and um, too many people are involved. There are too many titles. There, it's just There's too much to contain within one official version, which is why my own fan comic, um, The World of Claire Chrismont, is explicitly not happening in you know the real Marvel universe. It's not I guess it's not an interrogation of canon in that sense. It, it, I'm abdicating from the notion of having to encapsulate that whole time, even though everything that I'm working from comes from the ongoing 616 canon. I'm picking and choosing bits of it to validate or explicitly invalidate because I feel like that's really the only way to produce meaningful and like lastingly moving work because if you work in canon it will just it won't stick it will be undone or it will be redone to the point of unraveling the the main reason that I stopped reading x-men comics was because I just couldn't keep accepting the adjustment of these characters who I felt that I had some sense of I couldn't keep opening up my knowledge to insert new facts that recontextualized the whole of the thing. 
Like that's hard enough in real life. And this is just comic books that you read for fun and comfort. Mm -hmm. I I don't think that it's a good thing. I don't think it's actually helpful or or healthy or um, like, I don't think it improves. It certainly didn't improve my life anyway um, to try and keep up with a canon that long. And I think that the, the best way to tell stories in these long existing universes is to tell finite stories with defined points of reference. Like if you want to do a story where you reference this part of history and this part of history and this part of history, then that's fine. But asking the audience to keep in their mind that as well as that specific um, history for this specific story, you also have to bear in mind the entirety of the rest of everything else that also has happened. That's it's not practical and it's not engaging and it's not really immersive either. It's just it, it it's too much to ask of your audience, and it it definitely was too much to ask of me because I said no. Um. So so I th- I guess I wanted to see if it could work for me. The the idea that of just like being very clear and overt about which parts of um the shared combined history were going to be relevant to my version because if it can work for a fan comic then there's no reason that it shouldn't work for an official project and i i truly think that um it would be better if that is how the official releases from marvel worked i just as a critic it's weird where they get caught up with continuity and rules yeah as a critic it's easy to say the official people should do this or that. And I do it all the time. But I wanted to see if it was also easy to just do it and make it work. And as it turned out, it was. So, you know, fuck all of you guys. Listen to me because I know what's up. <laughs> I have proved it. it. It is such an interesting thing, but I think it is also almost impossible to say, like, for the people who want to come after writing these characters are taking over these characters or even like existing in a world with these characters just say this is the end this character is never going to show up again it's a impossible task for them to do because well like the thing that always comes back to me is how cyclops is supposed to be retired from the x-men after he married Madeline and that didn't take. And Madeline was supposed to be a red haired woman who just happened to look like Jean Grey mm-hmm. and that didn't get to happen. And it just became 50 other new strings when I would have liked to have seen a world where not necessarily Cyclops wasn't around, but where he actually got to live in a world that he dreamed of, which isn't, necessarily good storytelling but having people who could be routinely taken off the board or just having more of an era's feel without just being like oh these characters only appeared for like five years in the 90s because the people who liked them were writing them regularly Mm -hmm. and they won't be back until like another 10 to 20 years when people who grew up liking those characters decide to bring them back Mm -hmm. like i don't think that is always the most healthy way it's fun to have all these pieces to play with but it's also you can do a lot of damage and it 
is rough to have to say, oh, yeah, I don't want to read this character who I loved for years because now uh, they are just irrevocably hurt or broken or they're going to need a lot of recontextualizing to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Marvel used to, I'm not sure that when the last time they did it was, but they used to do what ifs all the time. Mm. Um, and those were a pretty good project, I think. I mean, it's essentially what I'm also doing, but um, I, th- I don't see why, I mean, if readers were able to relate to those, and if those comics were able to begin with um, an overt statement of, here is the event which this comic is straying from, I don't see why that can't be a regular occurrence. I don't see, I mean, at IDW, for example, um, the Gem comic um, mm-hmm. recently stopped being an ongoing and started being, um, every now and then they do a miniseries. And then that comes out in trade. And um, so far, the, the, the miniseries is, is that they have done are all in continuity from the series that they began with. But they don't have to be... Um, they can be read as standalones. Um, and there's no reason why, in an ongoing sense, they would have to be specifically in continuity from what has come before. There's, if you're going to put out miniseries every now and then there's no reason why they shouldn't be even more standalone than optionally standalone. And if the transition from ongoing to... Well, to uh, add in... Go ahead. Uh, I was going to add in, Marvel does do the occasional what-if series now, but it's typically tied around an event because those books are able to be targeted towards libraries where it's like, oh, we bought this Infinity book that a lot of people wanted. Well, now there's this What If Infinity thing that's coming out a few months later. We've got to get right. that for the entire collection. It's just, I know that Marvel has their own business plan and whatever. I just think that it sucks from a reader's perspective. I know that there is always an overturnable market. People are always growing old enough to buy their own comics. So people aging out at the top of that is technically okay as long as you get enough people within your short window they don't technically need to be sustainable which is why they do the events every year and the rebooting at number one for every book all the time and because those short-term boost sales and those boosted sales will keep enough people that all the ones that they also lose just seem like nothing but it does seem terribly short-sighted and it does seem destructive in the long term because it turns the people who stop reading so terribly cynical and so tired and I can say that both as an observer and as someone who has stopped reading and has started advising people not to start reading just because it's not worth the hassle and I think it's a shame because even though Marvel is not a great business and it's not owned by a great business and all the way up to the billionaires, they still have a cultural force in their superheroes. They have icons and they have characters that mean things to people. They have the ability to make people feel and think and connect. And it's just very hard not to think if only they were brave enough to try something new, a new way 
of gaining and sustaining audiences. Because, I mean, I said that Claire Chrismont was a um, a separation project, and it was, because having put these versions of my thoughts and feelings regarding these characters on paper and out into the internet, I feel differently about the canon. I, I genuinely do. I, I don't feel so beholden to this company or this brand or even the versions of the characters that I felt that I felt something for. It's made me um I suppose it's made me recognize how much of my care for these fake people comes from myself and it's made me appreciate I suppose that I really don't need Marvel. But just because you don't need something it doesn't mean that if it was good it wouldn't be good. You don't have to need things to want them or enjoy them or appreciate them. So I find myself in a position of sort of sad disdain, like a teacher who says, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. I genuinely am disappointed in Marvel as a business because I don't know if they see what I see that they have, but they definitely don't handle it in a way that I can appreciate it. And maybe they don't need to, but... Or in a way that is the most sustainable or even the most efficient. Like what you're saying, trying to come up with new worlds and sort of new approaches, they try to do that, but without a clear direction or a clear driving force or even the point to say no, you ended up with the ultimate universe, which was even more convoluted because it was like, oh, we need to have all of these important things in from this old world and it just sort of strangled itself in a way yeah i feel like there is um a prioritization of ambition over care um and i think that's a shame even though i mean my comics are just done in pencil and they're scratchy and um the lines are all wobbly and stuff on the one hand i slightly did that because i was being a little bit lazy but on the other hand i did it that way because that felt like the best way to be disruptive, I suppose, to um, emphasize the, oh, I guess what I feel is the vitality of these characters, even still, because I mean, they're, they're 30, 40, 50 years old, but they still have such vibrancy and such easy connection to the most the parts of, of a reader's mind that feel the most enlivening. And it, it just it's just such a shame to waste your audience when you have such potential. And um, I guess, in a sense, keeping my efforts to a pencil and an A5 notebook, I guess I am... I guess I'm being a little bit arrogant, which, you know, I do that. But... <laughs> but also i i am i'm trying to say like look it's it's not that hard if you have people who can make things so beautifully polished but you're not allowing them to be fantastic because you're confining them to such strange boundaries and such worn-in grooves then why even bother with them i suppose if there's nothing new to tell, why tell stories with them? Yeah, if I, I feel there's, I don't know exactly what it is, but there's some sort of 
innovation block. And that's not to say that people who work at Marvel don't do good work or even great work. It's just that they are being kept from their best professional selves, in my opinion, because they are confined to the strange world of 50, 60 year compressed canon and character histories that don't make sense and that exist in far, far too many people's minds in far, far too many different versions, all of which are or have been true. I I don't think that the current sense of reality within the Marvel Comics universe is fair for the readers or the characters or the creatives. I think it's a really weird, messed up thing that hasn't really existed anywhere else. Like, there, there really aren't, I don't think any other stories that pretend to be unbroken that have been going for that long, especially which pretend to have covered so little time in reality. I mean, Godzilla, the movie series, is that the longest running movie series? Or is it? does it have the most entries or is it both? Godzilla and James Bond, I think, compete with one another, but neither of those have unbroken stories about the same characters within them. I mean, technically Godzilla, but Godzilla doesn't have an internal monologue. And James Bond has been played by a bunch of different guys. And you can say, oh, it's actually the same person, but it's not because he didn't age. And neither did the Marvel characters, but the Marvel characters aren't played by real human people. So it's just, it's not comparable to anything else, really. And that's not acknowledged in the text or in the way that the people who own and control it lead the discussion on it. And I just, I think that's a real mindfuck. Well, what about uh, Doctor Who? I think that might be the most apt comparison because it similarly has had different teams running these characters. There have been so many different iterations and there is a level of continuity I suppose that is a good point. Like I, but I mean, immediately, the obvious um, answer is he regenerates into different people. And technically, it's the same guy. But it's not actually the same, same, same guy. He doesn't have the exact same... Like, his perspective as, like, internally is supposed to change. And his relationships with people change and in the one sense that's a metaphor for real life and how people really do change but on the other it makes him different and not exactly one one comparable to other fictional characters who haven't regenerated except you know in terms of the number on their book transformers and gi joe maybe because they came from comics and even from or spinning off of marvel creations like they've similarly got that continuity they've got the characters but they've also been a lot more willing and able to be like oh nope this is a different timeline this is a different start this is a new start and i mean in both of these cases they're they just they're much younger franchise the x-men started in the 60s transformers started in the 80s that's Mm -hmm. 20 extra years and as well um I mean, Transformers are supposed to be like basically immortal robot people. And they do have, you know, relatable human style personalities, but they are supposed to be a little bit alien. They are supposed to exist unchanged over millennia. Um, They're not supposed to be just people. 
I don't know too much about G.I. Joe. The only G.I. Joe that I've read is a few issues of the Citizen um, scripted series, which obviously is um, not the same versions of those characters. So it's sort of outside of the bounds of that discussion. Yeah, they have both been sort of intimidating blocks for me. And yeah. so oh, definitely, uh, yeah. getting into them. It is something that I have not tried. I've heard you can do it, but it's one of those things where, well, I've already put a lot of time understanding what I can of DC and Marvel mm-hmm. comics and even more time trying to cover alternate universe stuff within those lines. And it's... It's a bit much. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I yeah. When I was a teenager, I guess, um, I didn't really know about Transformers when I was little. It wasn't... I think I just missed it age-wise, so it wasn't really even on my radar. But when I was a teenager, I, I heard about it on DeviantArt, I think. Um, and I was like, okay, that sounds way too complicated. I'm clearly never going to understand it. That's just beyond me. Um, and I would have just written it off. But um, my boyfriend was a big Transformers head. And I was like, okay, explain it to me. Um, and eventually, you know, it took a long time. But um, you, I, I, doing it without a guide, I mean, I wouldn't. I just... What's the payoff you know <laughs> what's the benefit you, you pick your battles for a reason absolutely okay well i will uh put a link into your twitter thread that had you or where you initially posted the comics and also some screen caps up but are you ready to get to the question segment now i'm ready <laughs> okay uh so if people want to send in questions they can send in questions to at multiversal q on twitter and our first question comes from frequent question asker and Patreon supporter Xavier Files, who wants to know, what comic made you realize that we were never getting 80s Claremont back? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know, um, because to be honest, um, 80s Claremont wasn't the first Claremont that I read. It was the first Claremont that I had experience of, because my first experience of the X-Men was with the animated series. Um in the early 90s when I was just a small girl. Um, Most of that was adapted from his stuff. But um, when I became a comic book shop goer to a, when I was about 15, I think, I was reading Extreme X-Men, Claremont scripted, um, because it was too hard to tell which X-Men book was the right one. So I just picked up the one that had Rogan Gambit on the cover because I know what I like, and it's that. Um, so I read a lot of um, a lot of Claremont before I went back and did the whole uh, original run. So I guess I don't have the same conception of 80s Claremont as Claremont Claremont. Um, but the comic that made me give up on reading X-Men comics, I can answer, so I will. Um, it was New X-Men Academy X, and it seemed like it would be cool but nothing really happened and it just wasn't worth the time, money or hopes. So I was like, <laughs> forget you then. And, and then um, Scarlet Witch said no more mutants and reality changed. And I was like, right, if reality has changed, I just, there is literally nothing connecting me to what I was reading. So I'm out. And I stayed out. Well, Ramsey was at Ramsey Rocks on Twitter wants to know what's your thoughts on his post X Men work. I haven't read any. Shame, shame. You're you're kind of better off. I that way. did have an inkling that that might be the case, but I see. I don't want to be. Um, I don't want to be disloyal. 
So I suppose it is being disloyal by thinking, um, what if it's no good? I don't want to know because it, it doesn't show much trust. But on the other hand, I guess I just don't have much trust because it, it's, I mean, people always get into this, who do you follow, the creator or the characters? And for me, it's always been the characters. Um, I might stop reading those characters because I don't like the creator doing it. But I mean, I love Grant Morrison, but I don't give a shit about Grant Morrison's Batman. I just do not care. For me, it, it's the characters. Interesting. Not who, not the mind behind them. It, because, because, because I came to Claremont through the X-Men, what I know I like is how he writes the X-Men. And the X-Men are not everything. And so I don't necessarily have an innate belief that whatever he writes will appeal to me. Because he didn't invent the X-Men. He just came and did them. So mm -hmm. that's where I stand on that, I suppose. It's a safer place to stand. I came in through uh, Claremont's comics through his older stuff. Mm -hmm. Like his uh, New Exiles run, which was... We're currently covering that on uh, the podcast uh, every now and then. And it is not very good, and it is full of weird continuity stuff that he does not really take time to explain. Well, that's a shame. And through uh, Whom Gods Destroy, which was a Elseworld story, which is not very good and has Superman turning into a Nazi centaur and then a teenage girl. Because Chris Claremont. Right. Okay. Um... Yeah, well, rather you than me. <laughs> we are here to read awful comics. <laughs> that way people don't have to. That's generous of you. And a little foolish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, uh, we came into this podcast with hopes and we have routinely seen them shattered. <laughs> uh, ben Loves Booze, who is at NZ guy with hair wants to know why is Claremont yum my favorite of his tropes? Um, I guess does he mean when he has characters say yum about someone in a sort of sexual way? I would assume that he does. Uh, yeah, like uh, when Kitty would see someone who she found was attractive, I think it was more of an Ileana thing. They just think like yum. Well, I will tell you, Ben, it's because you're horny. And so are the characters. And it's sometimes just nice to see horniness reflected in a sort of happy, joyful, hands-off kind of way in a comic book. It's cathartic. And God bless you. That's a reasonable <laughs> answer. Uh, Matthew Craig wants to know, and he is at the Matthew Craig, why don't the X-Men dance anymore? I don't know. Um, I mean, I'll be honest, I don't know that they don't because as i've mentioned i no longer read them um which isn't necessarily mm. i should reiterate a value judgment it is a value guesstimate um although i'm sure that there are good writers writing the x-men um i just have not personally encountered any recently um because you know even though I am a critic, and I am in charge of a criticism website. Marvel does not send us anything to read, so 
I can't afford to just buy them all. So I get out of jail free on this one, I think. Don't judge me for not knowing about these comics that no one shows me. Um, why didn't the X-Men dance anymore? Because there's uh. no joy left at Marvel HQ? I don't know. I don't know. But I share your sadness for the loss of the boogie. <laughs> Steve Morris uh, or Steve W. Morris wants to know what are your thoughts on Storm the Arena? I don't know what this is. I do. It is an arc of Extreme X-Men. I love it, Steve, as um, I thought you were aware. Yeah, it's a, um, it is Storm and Yukio in a sort of fetish wear gladiatorial fight club. <laughs> You know, Chris doing Chris. He's got his things and he does them. And it's drawn, I think, by uh, Igor Corday, who was totally misused by Marvel. And it is a crying shame and a travesty. Um, he, he was a really good penciler, but they put him on like a thousand books and gave him all of these deadlines. And he was like, okay, I'll try. But they burnt him out and he started putting in subpar work and they got rid of him and he got a terrible reputation. It was a bad, bad thing that Marvel did. Um, but during uh, Storm the Arena, he was on fine form. Um, it's detailed. It's um, The world building visually is good. There are some fantastic splash panels. Extreme X-Men doesn't get a lot of remembering, you know, but I think... That even though it is past my uh, personal canon cutoff point, I go from the beginning to the wedding of Phoenix and Cyclops in 1994. That's the story of X-Men for me. And after that, there are some other stories that people have done, like fan fiction, um, which I may enjoy, but which I don't necessarily count as part of the story. Um, Extreme X-Men is one of those, partly because it was the first comic that I, as you know, an almost adult bought for myself it was my my coming of comics or whatever but it's got some interesting art it's got some fun continuity based stories but it doesn't it doesn't really wallow in continuity it just says it 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 introduces concepts that have been introduced previously but it it introduces them so the reader will not be lost they'll just be like okay this has come up before that's fine but the person who has read it having come up before will be like oh yes of course i remember um so i think that's a fairly well-managed example of of claremont's favorite um continuity inclusions yeah go and read extreme x-men that's my good advice for today <laughs> or at least go and read extreme x-men the, the storm sure yeah or storm the arena yeah. yes uh, we've got two more. Uh, James Leach, who's at James T. Leach, wants to know, what is Claire Chrisman's stance on the death of Thought Balloons? I'm against it. I love Thought Balloons. I think they're brilliant. And I'm not sure if I've used any, but I have in, in my other work. So look that up, I guess. No, checking through. I don't think I have. That's foolish of me. I'm going to have to stick some of those in. Yeah, I, I think it's a real shame that Thought Bubbles have died because they tell you what a character is thinking. And you know what? That's interesting. Um, it's something that I as a reader want to know, and I think that it is fairly useful. 
And I think it's something that could be used really well, especially when you have a story where some people can read other people's minds. Yes. Like you could play that as a really good twist where it's like, oh, you have someone planning and betraying the team. And then at the end, it's like, oh, they've all been prepared because you literally have Emma Frost or Jean Grey on the team able to read their yeah. minds and see what they were thinking. Yeah, I think the reason that I haven't used them for Claire Chrismont is because um, on purpose, they're such condensed stories. Um, none of them are longer than three pages. Some of them are just one. And that's that's because I was I was trying to capture the essence and the essence of the interaction between characters. Um, in a longer but similar project that I'm working on, which is... Ooh. Do you want to hear about it? Yes. Okay. Um, Please. So at womenwriteaboutcomics.com, we have two concurrently running essay series. One is a, a retroactive re-examining of the bad girls of the 90s at Image Comics. You know, like Witchblade and Cybernary and Vogue of Youngblood and, and so on and so on and so on. Um, and we're also doing mm-hmm. Year of the Knockoff because so many comics currently being released and already existing are massive rip-offs, which I think is fine. I think it's interesting because I have always been a part of fan culture and knocking off is just commentating, in my opinion. Um, so because of both of those, um, I've been reading a lot of the very early Image Comics output, most of which are very interesting because they are not very good, but they made such a splash and they sold so bizarrely well. But as with anything, some of them are just interesting in technicality, but some of them personally appeal to me. So because Rob Liefeld has been licensing his characters to indie cartoonists to do interesting reboots, which I think began with uh, Supreme Blue Rose by uh, Warren Ellis and Tula Lote, mm-hmm. I guess, and because I was doing Claire Christmas, I was just in that sort of... I can do it mood. And so when I came across um, a a title from 1993 from Extreme Studios, which is Rob Liefeld's image imprint, that um, appealed to me on the very immediate and easy level of, hey, these characters are ripping off the Rogue and Gambit dynamic. Um, I thought, well, if everyone else is doing it, why shouldn't I? If I can do mm-hmm. it with the X-Men, why can't I do it with this X-Men knockoff? So I, I decided I would. Um, and that that original series was four issues long plus an issue zero. It was supposed to be a movie. The movie is yet to happen. But with the uh, Netflix deal that, uh, that Rob has recently brokered, you know, it could still happen. Cross your fingers. Um, it's called Dooms 4. Mm-hmm. Dooms IV. Um, and it... <laughs> God, it's so interesting because it is, it's a fantastic four-rip, but not in any relevant way. Um, it's got all these details that are just right out of the Fantastic Four, but it doesn't converse with the Fantastic Four at all. It just... There's something really singular it's about it. It's just people with the same powers. Kind of, but they're not even... like They're all a bit wrong. So it's mm-hmm. it's like... 
they're knocking off the Fantastic Four, but it doesn't have... I mean, what's the draw of the Fantastic Four? It's that they're a family and that it's all cosmic, right? And that is totally irrelevant to Doom's Four. It's the actual practical reality of the comic is much more like an X-Men book in that they're all on the run and they're thrown together and they've got there's a there's a cable obviously because there always is with Rob Liefeld which is very charming to me it's just it's much more familiar to me as an X-Men fan than as someone also familiar with the Fantastic Four even though the really obvious components are more like Fantastic Four parts so it, it it's interesting on that like incongruent level but it also mm-hmm. is just the there's a character called Burn. She is the girl mm-hmm. of the team, and her power is that she can get hot. And also the Johnny Storm. Yes, um, but she doesn't go on fire. She just gets hot. Yeah. Um, and she sometimes accidentally gets too hot when she's touching someone, so she hurts them just by touch, just like Rogue. Um, and then there's Slider, who is exactly like kitty pride except also completely not like kitty pride um he can go through stuff and he's a computer genius and he has a y in his name but he i don't think he's jewish it doesn't come up but he's he's not like her but he is this is very engaging to me the the just the bizarreness of the similarities and the differences and how they don't really mean anything they just they just happen to be there um but he um this doesn't even come up in the comic it's in the back of the issue 0 which was a wizard exclusive there's a sort of interview profile article with Rob Liefeld and he's explaining these concepts that don't make it into the comic but were supposed to come up nebulously eventually um and the deal was that he starts uh, stopping he he can't unphase anymore because i think they even call it phasing that's just stealing so he's going Mm -hmm. too much physically invisible and but she because she can get hot can still touch him or something like it's not explained very well but it's a sort of inverse rogan gambit and it's got that um the stressfulness of touch as a real priority of their interpersonal dealings which is part of what makes mm-hmm. that pairing so interesting to me. And I it, it just seemed a real shame that it was just languishing in this book that no one except for you apparently has ever heard of. Um and Oh no, I, I Googled it on a uh, comic vine. Oh okay. So that no one had heard of. But there it was there in front of me and I thought I can use it. It's been working so far. Why don't I just do it? Um so because it's those four issues plus a special, um I've done four issues plus a special, but um, it's um, the reimagining is not so much the distillation of Claire Chrismont, but it's um, because there's no point doing it if it's not me doing it. I mean, if there's no point me doing it, if it's not like coming directly through me, if I don't put anything of myself into it. It's imagining... Because did you ever notice that the X-Men is a school story? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if school stories have the same um, cultural weight as 
as a phrase um, in America, but, but school stories. Not no, not really. There's there's like things that we'll have set at schools, but it's not like there's the whole boarding school mm. idea or even the these are the people who you're going to have these same friendships. There's it's a lot more transitional. Yeah, because here school stories are a really big deal, and I think because um, I think about. Um, why I like things a lot. And I think that the reason that I connected so immediately with the X-Men as a child, um, because the Spider-Man show was on at the same time as the X-Men on Saturday morning, um, and I liked it, but I didn't lock onto it in the same way. And I think that the reason for that is because the X-Men, in essence, a boarding school story, which I was extremely familiar with as partly as an English child, partly as the child of two people who attended boarding school. Um, my dad was a board and my mum was a day girl, so she did not board, but people at the school were boarders. So the the sort of psychological, boarding school has a psychological presence in my life. Um, and superheroes are popular in Britain. They really are, but they are popular as an American thing. And so connecting with this foreign culture's um, big product, the superhero, um, through the very British notion of the school story became very interesting to me. So my approach to doing this this reimagining of Doom's Four, which, from my perspective, is a reimagining of the X-Men concept. It was necessary for me to do that as if it were, like, take the basic, the basic template and, I guess, aesthetic structure of the superhero story and do it through the format of the British school story, just to see if I could make it work and to see if I could understand the similarities and the differences between these two types of story that have been equally meaningful to me through the doing of it. I can't remember where I began this uh, <laughs> this monologue, but I think I've reached the end now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I am interested in seeing that when it comes out. We have one final question, okay. and then we will wrap up this episode. Uh, Mike Donahue, who's at Barely Sushi on Twitter, wants to know, of all the awkward Claremont accents, which is the most awkward? <laughs> I love them all, though. I do. I really, truly enjoy deeply the Claremont phonetic accent. Um, I can't really, I can't really pick one I don't like. I guess um, if I can say yeah, that's everybody else's um, piggybacking. Because I don't think most people do it as well as he did. I don't think most people have the same ear for pronunciation as Chris Claremont. There have been a lot of extremely shit phonetic accents in X-Men directly, resultantly, from his um, establishing them as something that the X-Men do. Um, I mean, what's uh, Teresa... Rourke, yes, has had some dreadful, dreadful dialogue 
Um, I want to say Ian Edgington is the culprit, but that might not be true. I do know that he has written some some dialogue that has caused me great distress. <laughs> but um, yeah, um, with the caveat that I might be wrong, the worst Claremont accent is anything Ian Edgington wrote as an accent. Okay. Uh, well, Claire, where can people find you online? They can find me um, on Twitter most easily. Um, they can find my writing on womenwriteaboutcomics.com. Um, although if you do go there, which you should, it's a very good website. Um, currently, we don't have the... Uh, we usually have visible bylines on all of our articles. Currently, that is broken. So if you go there and you read something and it's good, it might be written by me, but it might not. It probably won't because statistically, I'm not the most... If there's something good, just uh, tweet me and say, this was good, did you write it? And I will inform you who in fact did write it. And a friend of our spinoff podcast, Kaylee Hearn, can also be True. found there. yep. Our reviews mm-hmm. editor. Uh, Multiversal Q is a weekly podcast. You can find my normal co-host, Devin, who is on Twitter at, at FredoFett. That's F-R-E-D-D-O-F-E-T-T. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Coltreg. That's K-O-L-T-R-E-G. Uh, you can visit our website at MultiversalQ.com. We also have a Facebook, which we are trying to regularly update now. And uh, you can see... All of our episodes, you can see our Trials of the Multiverse list and more at multiversalq.com. Next week we are kicking next week we are kicking off our Infinity Month where we are covering all of the what if infinity issues and we are bringing on guests both old and new to cover those. So make sure to come back for that and also Next week is going to be April Fool's Day. So, you know, we traditionally do something weird there. I promise there will not be weird vocal distortions this year. Uh, Claire, thank you again for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for asking. Uh, And yeah, uh, you'll also be able to find links on the website to all the comics that I mentioned uh, that Claire has done, not like. I don't think there's any place you can probably get Dooms 4 right now. No, Dooms 4th will be uh, coming in April. Look out for it. Also, I really want to see one. I also really want to see one where they all just get shrunk down and it actually is Dooms IV. (laughs) Yeah, uh, that wraps us up for that wraps us up for this week. We'll see you next time. Until then, this one's for Hank.